Welcome to my dang. My guest today is Dr. Susan Shaw, my friend and co-author. In this episode, she describes her Southern Baptist upbringing, her Baptist News Global article that went viral and the consequences of it, and her co-written book, Intersectional Theology. Please stay tuned. Mandy Ford is an artist and teacher specializing in hope-filled products, including stickers and art prints, digital and printable products, and creative courses to help your soul live a happier life. She is also the founder of Soul Care Creatives Club, a monthly membership club offering creative resources for soul care. Find out more at www.mandyford.co, follow her on her social media at Mandy Ford Art, and visit her shop at Mandy Ford Art. Pan Autumn began as a small group of Asian and Asian American women in divinity schools and ministry in 1984. Today, it holds annual conferences, mentors, women leaders in church and academy, and promotes social change for justice. To donate, please go to www.panautumn.org. The Gastronomy Club is a podcast that dives deep into the world of local restaurateurs, chefs, cooks, sommeliers, and more. We look at how food, dining, and life in general have informed the craft of eating as well as also spotlighting great places to dine. Check out The Gastronomy Club anywhere you listen to your podcasts. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com. This is Madang, an outdoor living room for guests to share their experiences and their work. I invite you to come in and stay for a while. Welcome to Madang. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in today. Um, I have a really wonderful guest today, uh, my friend and my co author and co-writer for a lot of stuff. So it's so exciting to welcome Dr. Susan M. Shaw. Thank you so much for coming. She's a professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Oregon State University. She's author of many books, uh, Reflective Faith, Women's Voices, Feminist Visions, and the book that we're going to discuss today, Intersectional Theology. So it's just a Great thrill to have Susan with me today. And I am sure you're going to learn a lot as you listen to this conversation. So before we get into the book of discussion, Intersectional Theology, which I uh, co-wrote, and we are so excited to talk about it today, we wanted to talk a little bit about um, Susan's background, um, her Southern Baptist background. So if you wanted to share a little bit about where you have come from and where you are going and where you are now. I think that will be so interesting to our listeners today. Okay, well, uh, first of all, Grace, thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm really excited you're doing this. And it's it's so great to see you after being locked down. And I, I look forward to when we can be together in person. I again. know, me too. Yeah. I can't wait till we can see each other face to face, not through this Zoom or any other social media means. Exactly, exactly. So uh, as you mentioned, I, I grew up Southern Baptist. I was born in Georgia in 1960 and grew up in a very fundamentalist Southern Baptist home in a very conservative part of, of the country. 
and very much internalized all of that. But I was also growing up at the same time as the women's movement was happening. And even though my church distanced itself from all of that and my family did, there was this part of me that really recognized that there was something wrong in the world. And, and always, even as a child, sort of pushed against it, even as I would go along with parts of it, but it never, it never fit quite right. But I didn't know anything else. And so um, I kind of kept those tendencies to myself. But I remember very clearly things like, uh, riding the bus to school and Helen Reddy's song, I Am Woman, would come on and I would like in my heart have my little fist raised in solidarity. Uh, so I guess, you know, they say as you grow older, you just become more of who you are. And I think those early indications show that that's probably quite true. So very early on, though, I felt a calling to ministry. And so uh, when I was 12, I, I made that profession in my church. And of course, at that point, you know, my church was supportive of women as long as they were called to be um, uh, a director of religious education or a children's director or a missionary if you were a single woman or a missionary's wife or a pastor's wife, those sorts of things. Uh, and, and at the time, what I thought I would do is actually go into uh, one of the denominational publishing houses. I thought I'd work for the Baptist Sunday School Board, as it was called back in the day. And so when I finished college, I went to private liberal arts college in Georgia, got a degree in English with a minor in journalism, and looked around for seminaries and decided to go to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, because it was considered sort of the academic Southern Baptist seminary. And, and so I wanted to do that. And my pastor wasn't very pleased because he considered that a liberal seminary, uh, but he reluctantly signed my letter and off I went to seminary, which is where I became a feminist, <laughs> where, I, where I really <laughs> took on that name after I encountered some, uh, some men who didn't think women ought to be there. And, uh, <laughs> and so, That must uh, have been a very difficult time, no? Well, well, it was interesting because this was in the middle also of the controversy among Southern Baptists where the fundamentalists were taking over the denomination back in the early 80s. And, and I'll just very quickly tell you the story because, because it's one of those moments like a, like a Saul on the road to Damascus conversion moment that I can point to when I became a feminist. And we all had to take a class called Formation for Christian Ministry. It was a small class, 20 students in each section of it. And so my class had 17 men and three women. And then you also had small groups that met one day a week. And my small group was nine men and me. And also in this class were three men who were there on a program that let you bypass college and still take seminary classes because they kind of figured, you know, if you're going to preach, we'd rather you have some seminary education than none at all. So there were these three guys. I mean, they were out of the coal mines of Kentucky. And they were all in this class. And guess what? They were all in my small group. And so the professor had said he was going to invite to class a woman uh, he had ordained when he was pastor of church. And I was excited because I went, I didn't know what I thought about all of this. I had been raised that women couldn't preach. Women shouldn't be ordained. Women shouldn't even be deacons. And um, so I was really excited this woman was coming to class. Well, the day that she came, one of these guys, and this was a big coal miner, um, he waits, she gets into class, the professor introduces her, 
and he starts and, and seminary guys all carried their big briefcases so that they would look really important or something i never understood it and he starts throwing his stuff in his bag and, and he slams the lid shut and he snaps the clasp but he walks out and he slams the door oh and my. i was mortified because he was rude and as you know that is the like 11th commandment for southerners is thou shalt not be rude <laughs> so the the next class was when we had our small group so we get to small group remember nine men me three three of the coal miners and the ta announces that the topic is women in ministry well this guy starts doing the same thing throwing his books in and I had never spoken before. I mean, I was 21 years old. I was shy and quiet. And all of a sudden, you know, if feminists talk about, you know, finding a voice, I slammed my fist on the table and I said, you can't just walk out when you're in ministry. And I was like, oh no, what have I done? I'm going to die here. And so he walks out and he starts waving his Bible around and he says, I can do what I want. And he starts saying something about the inerrant, infallible word of God. Now, that wasn't the day I became a feminist, though. It was the next day. Because the next day I'm in the hallway and two of his, his two buddies come up to me and they say, Susan, you know, he's really not a bad guy. And we just want you to know that we're praying for you that you won't get messed up with this women in ministry thing. And I became a feminist on the spot. Wow. wow. <laughs> that is so, unbelievable. Thanks to the coal well, this miners. This was in the 80s or what year? This was in the 80s. This would have been 80s? 1982. Yeah. This wow. was in 1982. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was and like so, a life-changing moment moment for you. Really? It, well, I mean, it was that clear to me that if this is the alternative, I, I'm headed down the other path. And so that's And then you of, never looked back? Nope, never looked back. <laughs> never, ever, ever looked back. Uh, and that sort of has led me, you know, where, where I am. And I, and I did end up, I taught religion for eight years, but I ended up in these liberal arts college, Christian liberal arts colleges, where they really weren't ready for a young feminist teaching religion. And personally, I was starting to come out. So it really wasn't a good place for me personally. So I went back to school, I uh, got a degree in uh, what was called women's studies at the time, or women's gender and sexuality studies now, and uh, switched over to teaching women's gender and sexuality studies at Oregon State University in 1996. And so I've been here for 25 years now. And wow. I teach a little bit of everything, but I also teach some courses in feminist theologies and feminism in the Bible. So that, that's how I got here. I owe it all to wow. a coal miner from Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite a story. because. You know, in the 80s, so many things happened, and I'm so glad that that event happened, and you are where you are, and I have visited um, your school a couple times, so I just, I love what you're doing, so thank you for sharing that story, and you got ordained too, right? Yeah, I did, so I did uh -huh. get ordained. How did my, you my, get ordained? Well, so my, my, when I finished seminary, I took a job teaching at a Southern Baptist college in California, and there was no way I could be ordained there. They would have fired me immediately uh, because it, it was enough of a struggle as it was. And so I left there after four years and came to George Fox College in Oregon, which was a, a Quaker college. Uh, they were evangelical Quakers, though, which was a, a, a different spin on the Quakers that I had known growing up, but they were, they were much nicer to me than the Baptists had been. <laughs> 
but the, all so there were eight men in the religion department and me and all of the men who were quakers were recorded because you know quakers don't ordain they record and so i really thought well what, what message is that sending if if the only woman in the department isn't somehow officially recognized for for the work that she's doing and i you know again had that sense of, of sort of a, a calling to it that, that it felt like this was something I needed to do that would be important for the work that I wanted to do. Um, so I ended up, uh, my church in Oregon, I was still going to a Baptist church at the time, but they couldn't have ordained me or they would have been booted out. The Northwest Associations are quite conservative and they would have been booted out. So I went back to my church in Louisville and they ordained me in 1993. And uh, so I came back and of course, as Quakers, they were quite supportive at, at George Fox of, of my ordination. And so that was, that was fine. And yeah, yeah. and I've kept that, even though I'm a member now of the United Church of Christ, I left uh, Baptist in 1996. <laughs> really? And you're not looking back? <laughs> no, well, no, no, that's not true. I look back all the time okay. because that's what I do most of my research on. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> but, but I do it from the safety of a public university in the Northwest. Yeah, so. mm -hmm. yeah. which is but very safe for you. Yes, I can't quite leave it alone, though. I have to keep poking and prodding at it. Mm -hmm. Well, I even dragged it into you, you into it because you're writing for Baptist News Global. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. So, well, thank you for dragging me into it because people always wonder, I'm teaching in a Quaker school or a Presbyterian and they're writing for the Baptists. And I enjoy, I haven't been able to do much because of my own health, but your writing is so, it's just so precise and you're able to just nail things so quickly. So I love your pieces. You know, we did a few for Huffington Post before mm -hmm. and then now for Baptist News. Um, global and you also write for uh, Ms. Magazine. Yes. Or, okay. Yes. So you're writing for a lot of places. So I don't know how, like you write faster than people can read your work. That's how I see it. So thank you for all the writing that you do in so many various places, because it's a voice that is so needed. And um, before one other thing, before we get into the book, um, there was that one particular piece that you wrote for the Baptist News Global that went kind of viral right do you want to share about that and your experience about that oh the one that got me trolled <laughs> yeah because i can't find you on twitter anymore i don't know yeah, no no i got off twitter because of that yeah, I, I know I so yeah yeah so tell us what happened yeah, and how you yeah. are feeling now about it well so um two things coincided that led me to write the, the first piece and and that was that um we had horrible wildfires in Oregon last summer. In fact, I woke up one morning and went outside and the sky was this eerie orange. And the, the wildfires, the closest they got to where I live was about 50 miles, but the smoke was so bad that we had to stay in for days. It was just terrible. The air wasn't, wasn't um, safe. And, and that comes from, of course, some of it's, you know, forestry mismanagement, but a lot of it is because of the ways that climate change is making the forest drier and we're having more lightning storms and those sorts of things. So the other thing that happened at the same time was some new research came out that showed that white Christians, both conservative and progressive ones, are less likely to accept climate science than Christians of color. 
so the piece I wrote and, and the argument was was a little complicated because basically what I argued was that we know that climate science denial perpetuates these policies that disproportionately affect people of color. And so when white Christians do not accept climate science, we are not fulfilling our obligations as Christians to care for others, but rather we're actually perpetuating a racist system that worsens climate change. So, well, campus reform, which is a, a group of students that, that campus reform gets to write articles about professors they consider to be you know, liberal and corrupting influences. So campus reform picked up my article and wrote about it and Breitbart picked it up. And that complicated argument I just explained became in their headlines, um, Oregon professor says white Christians cause climate change. <sighs> well, you know, and I didn't quite know, I knew campus reform was doing something. So I kind of expected a little bit. I had no idea Breitbart would pick it up. So when campus reform came out with it, I started over the weekend getting these ugly emails, I would say an ugly voice mails that were just, you know, oh, you lefty liberal, you don't know anything about climate science, stay in your lane, you, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, I, I didn't know Breitbart had picked it up, but it came out on a Monday with Breitbart and suddenly the messages took a decidedly nastier term, a turn. And so I was called every misogynistic, homophobic name in the book. And so these emails were just coming in and coming in and phone messages. And I didn't know how bad it was going to get or when it would stop. And so that's when I, I got off a lot of social media. Um, my campus was really great. They, they really supported me. The uh, public safety started reading my emails for me so I wouldn't have to see the stuff anymore. Um, the the uh, university relations and marketing people, you know, they, they addressed it with people who brought it up. And, and you know, my dean supported me, the vice president supported me. I mean, it was just really... A good time and people from all over got in touch with me with with supportive messages and so it really ended up being a lovely time even though it was awful in some other ways um but of course you know me it's not like it slowed me down <laughs> Nothing so then will i wrote about being trolled <laughs> that's good yeah i know i always find you know if one thing leads to another you just keep writing about it so thank you for that and yeah, thank you for sharing because i do remember it was such a painful time for you yeah. and i'm i'm glad that you're able to kind of turn it around and hopefully you'll come back on twitter i don't know if you left instagram too but i no, can't but find... i haven't put much up of what yeah, I, so you're not how... actually the problem was i couldn't figure out how to cancel my instagram account <laughs> Well, anyway, I hope that you can come back because I think a lot of your work is so important. So thank you for that. And I let's turn to the book because, and everything that you've said. Yeah, I love that. And we matched our shirt. So I just feel like we're on the same wavelength today. But, um, you know, everything that you've shared so far is so important to understand our book, Intersectional mm -hmm. Theology. And before we get into it, uh, you know, it we met each other, I think it might've been 2000, I don't know what the year was. Yeah, it's maybe been 10 years ago, maybe, yeah. maybe less, I don't know. 
but we met through your colleague Robert Thompson. Um, it was Robert Thompson. Oh, Robert Thompson. Yeah, Dr. Robert Thompson, who had heard me on Reverend Jesse Jackson's radio show, Keeping Up Alive, mm -hmm. and then read my book, uh, Grace of Sophia, and then invited me to speak mm -hmm. at Oregon State University. Mm -hmm. And so I came and then we had this lovely lunch or dinner mm -hmm. and you were there. Mm -hmm. And we just hit it off. And we said we should work on something together because you know as you share your southern baptist upbringing it is very similar to my uh korean christian presbyterian upbringing too mm -hmm. very conservative mm -hmm. so we do have these points that intersect and so all of a sudden and i i actually maybe you can remind me how we decided on the topic intersectional or intersectionality. I can't remember how we came up with that. Well, we we kept talking about ideas. You know, we were we were tossing stuff out and refining it, and we got to talking about how we wanted to make sure everything was intersectional, intersectional, blah 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 blah. And then I think we just started realizing that nobody was really sort of applying that as a framework in theology. I think that's mm. when we kind of. Put that okay. together mm -hmm. thank you for refreshing my memory because a lot of things and because of my health i'm my memory is just going berserk so thank you for reminding me because i think once we it took a while for us to settle on the topic yeah oh yeah but then once we settled on that it was very easy to write it because we recognize that as you just said hardly any theologian was working on this and this is a way to do theology mm -hmm. so share with us today um you know, it'll be a conversation, of course, because we co-wrote it, but I do want to hear your words because you, I find you are much wiser than me. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't yes, think so. you are. So share with um, the listeners today and those who are, who, are, who will be watching um, on YouTube, etc. What is intersectional or intersectionality? So give us a wide scope what it is. Well, it's really a lens, it's a way of seeing the world that reminds us that that we always need to look at all forms of social difference at the same time. So gender, race, class, sexuality, age, ability, religion, nationality, because all of those things are happening to us all at the same time. And they happen not just in our identities, but our identities exist within systems of power. And I think that's what intersectionality as a concept really brings to the conversation is so we're not just looking at individual people, but we're looking at how systems of power. So racism, sexism, heterosexism intersect and then shape experiences differently. And so, you know, one of the things we do in the book is the way we tell our stories to, to demonstrate that. So how you and I may have a shared gender, but but our experiences of sexism get shaped by our race, our sexuality, our social class, and all those sorts of things. And so intersectionality keeps us from being um, uh, what Vivian may call single axis. And so we're always looking at the multiple ways those different systems of power shape individual and group experiences. Yeah. So thank you for giving that background. And also, you know, we we want to in the book acknowledge Kimberly Crenshaw, who actually coined the term, who was a black um, lawyer, uh, understanding her understanding that it's not just her her race, but also the gender aspect that 
that plays out in this form of oppression. So I think, you know, we, we do uh, want to acknowledge the Black thinkers, not just mm -hmm. with Kimberly Crenshaw who coined it, but all the a whole legacy of Black women thinkers mm -hmm. who kind of led to this understanding of intersectionality. And I'm just grateful that, you know, I really, you know, I don't know if I expressed it well, well enough, um, Susan, when we met and we did the book launch at Oregon State University, but I am really grateful because as I co-wrote this book with you, I just learned so much um, not just on the term, but how we can work as colleagues and be understanding of one another, be accepting of one another. Like every book is a journey, but the journey that I had with you, and I've written several, uh, I co-authored several books. Uh, it was just so, um, it was just a wonderful experience mm -hmm. to kind of co-write with you and I learned so much from you and you have this rich background of both theology and of you know women's studies and and your Baptist background so it was just so interesting and so wonderful to learn from you and we do have a section on you know theology as biography and biography as theology and our chapter two is biography as intersectional theology so did you want to say more about that yeah, and, and I would say I, mean, I had the same experience. I think working, we, we just, we work together really well. You don't always uh -huh. find that, but yeah. our styles and what we brought, I just thought just melded so well. And uh, one of my favorite memories, of course, is us sitting upstairs at the uh, Wegmans. Yeah. yeah. Having lunch. Yeah, I know. And it, we worked so well together. And yeah. I have a picture so we can show to people. But yeah, that I was so grateful that you've had the funds to come to yeah. where I am um, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, because you're on the opposite side of the of America here when we think yeah. about it. So yeah. it was great for you to come and then meet my family and just mm -hmm. work together because we worked really fast on this book, we did, which yeah. which was unbelievable. But I think it's because we were on the same wavelength. Yep. And so we were able to kind of bring our different perspectives, our different biographies and and, and our um, you know, our different identities, because even though we're both women, as you mentioned earlier, our identities are still very different. And those impact our own experiences mm -hmm. and how white heterosexual normative uh, culture and Christianity affects yeah. how we exist and how we experience our experiences. Yeah. 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 And I think that, that how, how, biography as intersectional theology is so important is that, that you know, the, the, when we do contextual theology, when we come from our place of, of experience, you know, where we're socially located, as, as we would say in women and gender studies, then we're bringing something to the conversation nobody else can bring because nobody else has our experiences. And of course, you do that with a certain humility, also recognizing it is only my experience. It is not truth for everybody. And I think intersectionality allows us to hold all those truths of experience in mind at the same time, even, even if they're contradictory, because again, it, 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 the, the truth is so much bigger than that. And so I don't see differing opinions and differing experiences and different theologies as a problem. In fact, I think that that's good for us so that we don't uh, codify our own opinions as if they were divine word, which we see a, a, a lot of. 
And uh, yeah, and 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 I think that you know that's that's one important piece is that we do that work and that we hear other people as well. And so I think it's that both that we value our own story enough to recognize we can do theology from this perspective and bring something to the conversation nobody else can, but also we recognize that it's really important that we hear everybody else doing that as well and that we bring all those things together. And it's still going to be partial and incomplete and we still have lots to learn. And so I think that's a really important component. And again, to keep it all within those systems of, of power is yeah. how does this fit within the structures? Mm -hmm. I think that's very important. And we want to recognize it's not just women who bring their biography. If we look at all of Christian theology, the white heteronormative white European perspective yeah. was all embedded in their theology. Yeah. It's just, we just say, oh, but that is theology. But exactly. we really need to name it because yeah. all those writers were writing from their experiences, from their perspective when, uh, when they were writing about feudal lord system, we have to recognize that uh, you know these white male theologians were writing from their experiences and from their context, and we need to label it because sometimes uh, people just say, "Oh, it's just the women that are doing it," and you guys are so bad because you're not really doing this correctly, uh, you know, the divine, you don't understand the divine, you're making everything so messy and, and mm -hmm. contradictory, as you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. But we in this place of intersectional theology, intersectionality, we are very comfortable in that space mm -hmm. yeah. where there is contradiction, where it is messy, and it doesn't have to be so clear cut, because we as finite beings will never understand the infinite anyway. Mm -hmm. The infinite is beyond our language, beyond our imagination, beyond the way we can ever um, speak in our language or any way we can kind of convey because God is infinite. And when mm -hmm. we're doing theology, I think it's best to acknowledge that at the beginning yeah. rather than and then saying, oh, you know, we tried this and it doesn't work. But just to name it and say, we mm -hmm. can't ever understand the completeness of God. Mm -hmm. And and white male theologians have some of them have said that too. So we just mm -hmm. want to recognize that mm -hmm. and, and leave it out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important because, you know, theology has been handed down to us and taught to us as if it just is. Mm -hmm. And that there's no influence of race or gender or sexuality. You know, it's just it's just theology. And the truth is it's all been done from a place of great privilege until quite recently, I would say, mm -hmm. or it was done in, in ways that did not fit the dominant paradigm of how to do theology. And so for women, it may have been done as, as memoir or as journaling or all these other sort of methods that women might have had, but that wasn't considered real theology. Yeah. And that's interesting. I'm so glad you mentioned it because my first Madang episode, I had Diana Butler Bass on her new book, yes. Freeing Jesus. And at the end, she talks about memoir theology. And I found it very interesting because exactly what you said, Susan, we get labeled as what we're doing is not important. It's just some mm -hmm. memoir, it's a storytelling, it's yeah. not that important. But when we look at scripture, it is all storytelling, isn't it? From the dominant writers, from mostly yeah. male writers, it is storytelling. Yeah. And, and there is so much truth in the storytelling. Mm -hmm. We come to understand God through the storytelling. Mm -hmm. You know, even 
Genesis, the book of Genesis, when it begins with the creation story, you know, it is a story. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, and however way you want to interpret the story, um, there is a lot of truth in that story. Mm-hmm. So I'm so glad you mentioned it, Susan. And I'm so grateful for other women thinkers like Diana Butler Bass and uh, so many women who came before us yes. who really challenged these different paradigms and, and challenged the white heteronormative thinkers, the male thinkers, mm-hmm. particularly in, in Christian theology, because, mm-hmm. you know, they, so many of them paved the way for us. Yeah. So thank yeah. you for mentioning that, Susan. Yeah. Yeah. I think about people like um, Dolores Williams and uh, Sally McFaig and, you know, because I think her models of God really kind of helped disrupting and uh, Rosemary Radford Ruther, of course, Phyllis Tribble, who was a yeah. Hebrew Bible uh, scholar out of Southern Baptist tradition, <laughs> might I add. Uh, and, and so, yeah, there's this sort of long line of women doing this innovative work that I'm so grateful that, that they did and that, that I can kind of, you know, draw on that and build on that. Uh, and, yeah. and I still find it useful. Yeah, so I'm I'm so grateful for all of them and and for the younger generation who are coming and being so innovative mm-hmm. and so creative and and reimagining and how we can do theology mm-hmm. in different ways because there is so much room at the table and we need everybody at the table to help yeah. us understand who God is and God's presence in this world. So uh, you know, there's so many good things about our book. You know, I don't <laughs> want to say you know it is still our book. <laughs> If you were the sole author, I could have gone on and on, but because I'm part of it, I need to humble myself here. Um, Chapter three is about intersectionality as theological method. So Susan, do you want to just share a little bit about how we use intersectionality as a theological method? Yeah, well, the way we've set it up in the book is really is a series of questions uh, that that, um, theologians should think about as they're trying to do uh, theology. So, so you and I didn't try to create a systematic theology because that was just too much work. Too much work at my age. <laughs> but, but, but to to set up so that we ask these questions as we're going along, like, how is my social location affecting how I think about this issue? You know, am I being inclusive of diverse voices in how I think about this issue? Um, I think one of the important things that uh, comes from the work of of people like Vivian May and Patricia Hill Collins is this idea of both and. So am I holding the competing tensions in mind so that I'm not doing an either or theology, but a both and. And that's, again, how we can have those contradictions be part of our thinking. Uh, And then the notion of simultaneity. Um, Am I keeping gender, race, class, and so on? all in mind, all at the same time. And that's really hard work to do, um, especially I think for people in, in dominant groups who don't have to think about those identities and systems of power. And so you really have to retrain yourself to ask, you know, how, how is my gender and race and class affecting how I'm seeing this? You know, what, what do those things bring to it, but also what limitations do they impose on me? And so yeah. that's kind of how we I, saw it as this new, new method to make sure that, that intersectional thinking is at the center of doing theology. 
Yeah, and I, you know, we do mention in the book that intersectionality is not just for the marginalized or those who are oppressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's for everybody. It's a, it's a, it's a tool. It's a lens to see yeah. the world and to see God. So we don't. Yeah, and as you mentioned earlier, the white male they need to kind of understand that they themselves have all these intersecting. Identities, um, their education, their ableism, their sexuality—all those need to come into play, and so they should make an extra effort to kind of bring that in when they're when they're writing and doing theology. Well, and I think of the, of the things we learn from each other when we listen. And I'll go back. You've heard me talk about this to you a gazillion times. But, but you giving me the concept of Han, oh, you know, um, it, it came up. You you may remember we were talking about how this group of us who were in the doctoral program at Southern Seminary when the fundamentalists were taking over can't, there's something that can take us back to that moment. We still carry this pain and rage from it. And, you know, we talking about it and you said, oh, well, we, we have a concept called Han, which is, you know, the, 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 um, the pain and the grief that comes from unresolved injustice. And I was like, that's it. We are suffering Han, because we have this unresolved injustice that we can't quite get past. And, and, and that comes from that, that sort of both and of sort of looking at these things for me as a, you know, white woman who experienced them at the time. And then you being able to bring this, this concept from Korean culture that I never would have gotten to (laughs) from, from, you know, sort of the, the dominant white American way of thinking about things. Thank you so, so much for sharing that because I could, I love to hear it over and over again. So I'm so grateful. And that's what happens when we kind of welcome different people at the table. We want, you know, women have been excluded for so long in Christianity. So we want to bring women and, and, you know, the, women have different experiences than men, bodily experiences, just culturally different uh, experiences. So to bring all that, it just enriches our conversation. And so different cultures like Korean culture, South American culture, African, um, you know, they have different concepts and different languages and they're so helpful in understanding and articulating some of the experiences that we are experiencing. And so, and also I'm so grateful that, you know, when we were writing it, the both and um, aspect, because I think Christianity from the beginning, uh, you know, with the heavily influence of the Greco-Roman philosophy, Greco-Roman empire, the Roman empire, it, it kind of, the Greek philosophy of dualism was so heavily embedded in Christianity. So dualism separating the two uh, concepts. So male and female, uh, word and wisdom, heaven and earth, body and spirit, so that it divides the world into two. And, and so this dichotomy, and we can't bring it together. But, you know, we need, we need everything we need, you know, we're not just physical beings, we're spiritual beings, the body and the spirit, we need to work together. And, you know, all these things. So the both and is such a helpful way to kind of move away from this dualism, which has been very harmful in so many ways. So I'm glad we were able to do that. Yeah. And I think this is where sort of the, in, in the cutting edge of theology right now, hearing the voices of people who are transgender, genderqueer, non-binary is going to be so important because I think the theology that's going to come from those experiences really will be disruptive 
of that dualism because it will yeah. show it to be to be um, um, a lie. And mm -hmm. and I think that's why the religious right is fighting so hard right now to oppress and silence uh, trans and non-binary people because that that represents such a threat to patriarchy. Because if you can say yeah. that no longer there's they're, they're not just men and women and there's not this hierarchy, well, how do you justify male dominance now? <laughs> yeah. So and we need disrupt disruption. I think that's yeah. very important. Um, it makes us kind of rethink and reimagine and and you know reexamine our history and our heritage mm -hmm. and our long tradition and say you know what works and what doesn't work where have we gone wrong where have we okay. really strayed um from um this uh liberative theological ways of understanding and being in and being with one another so yeah. you know i think it's great and you know i think in the next decade or so we will hear more and more and we should welcome those voices and so you know it's one thing if theology has a method because some theology just stops there you know there's a method and you know i teach theology and i teach my students you know these different methods of doing theology if it stops there i think there's a disservice to theology. So we not only have this theological method of doing theology using intersectionality, then we go on and we try to apply intersectionality to theology and Bible, and even how we become church. So those are the uh, two big chapters uh, in the book of how it is practical and how we can use it. So Susan, you wanna share some thoughts about how we can apply it to uh, theology and how we apply it to how we read scripture and how we become church. Yeah, I mean, I think again that, that we go back to those questions and we keep asking those questions and imagining then how does this um, help us to, to expand our understandings of, of human experience and human um, interaction with, with the divine. You know, and I think like in reading the Bible, uh, when, when we bring an intersectional, intersectional perspective to reading the Bible, we hear all of these other voices. And so I think about, um, you know, I love, I love the work that Musa Dubé does in, in biblical interpretation. And to hear her bring that um, uh, um, voice from Botswana, from Southern Africa, is so important because those are not ways I would ever think about or read the text. And so, for example, she reads the story of the woman with the hemorrhage as the story of Mama Africa, who is bleeding because of colonialism. And, you know, that, that, that's not a perspective I would bring to that story. And so doing an intersectional reading lets me hear her reading, and it is valid, and my reading, and what you might bring from the experience of being a Korean American woman. And, you know, and then that just enriches our understanding of the biblical text. And then when we think about it in terms of church, I think it helps us ask those questions about, you know, who are we leaving out and how are we um, missing the mark? Because for me, my vision of church is so inclusive. And I think the fact that church remains so segregated is a problem. Mm -hmm. And I know like all those church planter types and church growth types in the eighties were saying, no, no, you know, you want to build communities where everybody's alike because people want to come to that. And I'm like, but that's not Christian. <laughs> That's not church. 
Uh, and, in, you know, in the book, we point to a couple of communities, in, including the community of faith I belong to up in Portland, um, Ainsworth United Church of Christ, which is a multiracial, multicultural, um, open and affirming sanctuary church. You know, we, we take on every every social issue we can. And it truly is a, a church that is diverse in all those sorts of ways. And that is also central to our identity. It didn't happen by accident, but it's been very intentional of imagining how do we bring together all of these people to be church together in this community and to do the work we're supposed to do. But, but it's hard, you know, because uh, people bring different worship styles. People um, like different things. And, and I remember, <laughs> uh, okay, so grew up white Southern Baptist sort of gospel tradition. So of course we had altar calls. I don't know that y'all. I don't know if y'all have those. I, I grew up with altar calls. Okay. Yeah. Well, the way they worked for us is you had an altar call, and if you felt moved, like if you wanted to, you know, accept Jesus or you needed to get right with God, you walked the aisle, you shook the preacher's hand, you said what your dish, it, issue was. The preacher would pray with you, or you could go kneel on on the steps <laughs> up to the choir loft and and pray. You know, that, that was my experience of an altar call. And so one Sunday I was going to preach up at Ainsworth and the pastor said, well, why don't you do an altar call? And I laughed. I thought, well, this is the UCC. She, she's just joking with me. And she was like, no, 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 I'm serious. Because a lot of the uh, black members of the church come from traditions where, you know, that's part of it. And they like to have that every once in a while. And I was like, are, are, you are going to make me do an altar call. Are you kidding me? So we get there and I get ready to do the altar call and I've got in mind what we did in our little white Southern Baptist church where it's very orderly. Everybody gets in line and they come one at a time. Well, I didn't know that is not how you do it. <laughs> in black churches. <laughs> and all of a sudden here come all the people. And I didn't know what to do. So I'm like, let us pray. <laughs> And I, oh, wow. I told them, don't you ever ask me to do an altar call again. <laughs> Was that your first and your last altar call? My first and last. It's like, man, I like Baptist, so I don't have to do these kind of things. <laughs> well, Susan, you know, I forgot to mention that I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, but I also attended so many Baptist church when I was uh -huh. growing up. Okay, you I, know. <laughs> I, yeah, I went to a Baptist church Sunday morning for, for our Bible study. Mm -hmm. And then, so that was like a Sunday school Bible study. And then Sunday night, I went to a different Baptist church. Um, it was a small, quaint Baptist church because we had Sunday evening worships that, back then. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes on a Wednesday, we would go to a third different Baptist church. <laughs> oh, and my. then Friday, I went to a Missionary Alliance youth group. Oh, so I, that's why I think mm -hmm. I have full quality and, and, and qualification to write for the Baptist news. <laughs> News Global, because I actually had a lot of Baptist background. Yeah. And so I remember those altar calls, but then Koreans actually had those altar calls too. Yeah. I have uh, participated in so many altar calls, but I have never led one. So that's quite something that you actually led an altar call. I think maybe I should experience that one day yeah. and, and do one and see what happens. Yeah. But, I, I, yeah. Yeah. but thank you for sharing that. And thank you. You know, I think being church when we think about intersectionality is intentional church building mm -hmm. you know intentional welcoming intentionality of being intercultural mm -hmm. i think that's so important and you know 
this is a uh, month of May and the podcast will come out in the month of May and we are celebrating AAPI Heritage Month. And so, you know, churches, some churches are celebrating it, not all churches, but I think it's important that it's not just a one month thing, but yeah. throughout the year, how can we become intercultural mm -hmm. church? Yeah. And, you know, we also talk about being a resistant church, resistant against powers of evil that do continue to marginalize, continue to oppress, continue to uh, subordinate certain groups and, and, and saying certain groups are evil. So it is this intersectionality really calls us to become an intentional church, a resistant church, and to become a new way of being church, which welcomes. And, you know, thank you for sharing about uh, Musa Dube. Oh, go ahead. You wanted oh, to say something? Well, let me tell you how I, how I ended up going to Ainsworth United Church of Christ. So yeah, please tell us. This was 1996, and I, I'd had it with Southern Baptist. And so I had left and I was looking for a church home. And so I'd gone, I was checking out churches in Portland, but I'm such a Baptist that I cannot deal with hierarchy. And so that, that meant the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, they were all out <laughs> because they had hierarchies. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so I had been going around to the UCCs up in Portland and they were lovely, but they were all white. And I had made a commitment that I just I couldn't do the all white church. Now this is in Oregon, so th this is difficult. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so I got up one Sunday morning and I said, okay, this is it. Either I find a church today, I'm just gonna start going with the Unitarians because you know, they have a great pastor and I'll just be a Unitarian. And, and so I went to I went to the Yellow Pages. This this dates me too. I went to the Yellow Pages <laughs> and I thought, well, the UCC is closest in terms of polity and theology, so let me see. And there was an ad for Ainsworth because I'd been to all these others and it just is a tiny little ad that said um, a multiracial, multicultural church. And I thought, ha, I know what that means. That means one black family and a Latin janitor. I know what this means, but I'm going to go. And this is it. You know, I, if this doesn't work, I'm done. Well, I pulled up there and as I went in the church, I was the only white person I saw at first. And I get in and I sit down and it's, you know, a real mixture of people. And I'm like, okay. And then the choir comes in. It is led by this amazing black woman that later I found out was a music teacher and sang with the Portland Opera and all this. And she's leading the choir. They are marching in singing, I woke up this morning, you know. And so I'm like, okay, okay. And then we were in between pastors. And so they had an interim pastor who was this really old Japanese American man. And he gets up there and he preaches on gay rights. And I thought, I'm home. I have found my people. <laughs> well, that's a great story. So thank you for sharing. <laughs> that's the intersectional church. I think. <laughs> and yeah, and when we're talking about intersectional church and the intersectionality as a uh, theological method and all that, we want to say, its praxis and that it needs to lead to social justice. If it doesn't, then we always ask ourselves, what is the purpose of doing theology if it doesn't lead to social justice? And I know there are some denominations like, oh, that doesn't matter because, you know, we go, we're going to die and go to heaven, etc. So it doesn't really matter. But I know and we'll go into that another time about your, your feelings about the afterlife. But, you know, people do say that, you know, it's who cares how we live now because uh, we're all going to die. We're going to go to heaven. But, you know, when we 
when we look at scripture, Jesus and God, you know, they cared about people's context and their experiences. That was a whole Exodus story. When the Israelites were crying out and saying, you know, set us free, set us free, you know, we want to be free, crying out to God. God heard their cries and set them free. God cares about the context mm -hmm. that we're experiencing and the experiences. Mm -hmm. So yes, people today experience so much oppression in different levels. That's what intersectionality is, either through ableism or education or gender or sexuality or our or, class our social economic class and climate justice and you we began you know at the beginning before we got into the book about climate injustice and that there is environmental racism that happens and that's what the point of your article was that it does affect the poor and the poor people of color not actually just in the u.s but around the world the poor are affected way more you know we the rich nation pollute the world and and then you know it's the poor people who are losing their homes and their lives and their livelihood and so you know we have to recognize how all these intersect and if it doesn't lead to some form of justice then we really need to say why are we doing this theology if it doesn't lead to that yeah. yeah, and the, and the people in you know women and gender studies who write about intersectionality are very clear that it always has a bias toward justice. And you and I certainly brought that over in the book. And you know, and as any good sort of liberation theologians would do, we said, you know, and the point of all of this has to be that it leads to not just the the spiritual liberation, but that the social social and political liberation of all people. And yeah. and I think you know we're we're unapologetic about that i think that, that that's what's core to us in the gospel yeah. which is why and, you know pie in the sky in the sweet by and by isn't the important thing <laughs> <laughs> that's true and because uh we're dealing with the topic of intersectionality i think it was important that we kind of co-wrote it because yeah. uh, we were able to bring the different ways our lives are intersecting and you know our identities are so different and so we were able to bring the different perspectives so it was a true joy to write the book and it's always a joy to talk with you and it's i'm so happy that you were a guest on my madame podcast you are the sixth guest you know i just started this recently so i'm so excited um, that you were able to join and share a bit of the book. So those who are interested should actually go out and get the book. And we're so happy that so many seminaries are using it in their theology classes, because that was our aim. And we're hoping that it's not just in the classroom, but everywhere else that people will read, because it is an informative book. It's not highly technical yeah. though when we talk it may sound technical but it is very easy reading so i'm hoping that many people read it and and and, and join in the conversation yeah. so are there any last minute words that you want to share you know because you are so wise so please leave some <laughs> words of wisdom with us today before we go about words of wisdom but i'm just i'm so grateful that that we found each other you know because i think that it's just been a delightful uh, friendship and um, uh, partnership, and 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 I'm just not doing well with words right now, uh, so so not too much wisdom. But I, I just think that you know it, it all clicked, it all came yeah. together, and I'm so grateful for that, and so appreciated everything I've learned from you and the ways that we work together. And just a little teaser. That's what I'll leave us with. Okay. Time. Yeah. Grace and I are working on a new book. <laughs> so, 
we're going to apply <laughs> intersectional theology to something else, but you'll have yes. to wait. Uh -huh, hoping yeah, maybe to finish that up in 22 or early 23 to get it out. So yeah, and I'm going to have you back when when that book is out because that's a very important book and we can't say too much about it. But you know, just co-writing it with you, it's a joy. Um, it, it's a it's a very difficult book to write, but you know. Mm -hmm have a good solid writing partner like yourself um, it just makes it easier so i'm really grateful and grateful to your colleague for bringing us together because without him and his name escapes me again i feel like calling him robert. dr oh dr robert. robert you know without him in inviting me we would have never met because yep. We are in different disciplines at the moment, yeah, though yeah. you were in theology, you were in dis different yeah. disciplines. But I think the different disciplines, I think, really help us writing uh, yeah. intersectional theology and the new book that we're writing. Yeah. So I'm so grateful. And I know, you know, I would love to talk with you all day long, but I know <laughs> you're busy with your work too. But um, I'm so grateful to have you as my guest. And when that other book is finished in a year or so, you know, you're going to come back and be my guest again. And hopefully uh, when this pandemic is over, we'll see each other face to face. Absolutely. And, yeah, maybe you can come back here and work, we'll work together on top of Wegmans. Wegmans, the store is open, but the upstairs is all shut down because of the pandemic. Oh. So, yeah, once things uh, slowly open up, um, hopefully we can yeah. write together. And I'm just glad that this um, intersectional theology is having an impact. Yeah. And, you know, today is Monday. We're recording on Monday, but Saturday, I was on an intersectional panel, and then Sunday, I recorded for Intersectional Theology for Justice Conference. So for the last three days have been all about intersectionality, Excellent. which is a really good thing because I'm recognizing that people are now understanding how important this term is. And it's not just in Christianity and in theology, but it's an important term for different disciplines because it's this tool and analysis, a lens, for helping us understand and make sense. Yeah, yeah, and, and and maybe these are the words of wisdom that that for people who want to think more deeply about uh, the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protest and the differential impacts of the pandemic and the gender violence that we see around the world from 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 what's going on to in in, in Myanmar with the Rohingya, and, you know, and just on and on and on. Um, intersectionality helps us understand that and and i think that intersectional theology will help us reflect on the meaning of those events and so i think that uh, it, it could be a really valuable tool for folks who want to do a little deeper exploration oh thank you for those final words of wisdom it was a joy to have you for those who are interested you can get intersectional theology anywhere books are sold online etc it's an introductory guide and it's published by fortress press so um, i hope um, you will all delve into this book and we would love to hear from you from our readers so thank you so much for listening to madame podcast it's always a joy to have different guests but today especially i'm so grateful to have my friend and co-author co-writer dr reverend dr susan m shaw so thank you for joining us and please listen yeah please <laughs> listen to the other other episodes too thank you so much bye-bye bye, -bye. bye. <laughs> Mandy Ford is an artist and teacher specializing in hope-filled products, including stickers and art prints, digital and printable products, and creative courses to help your soul live a happier life.
She is also the founder of Soul Care Creatives Club, a monthly membership club offering creative resources for soul care. Find out more at www.mandyford.co, follow her on her social media at Mandy Ford Art, and visit her shop at mandyfordart.etsy.com. Pan Autumn began as a small group of Asian and Asian American women in divinity schools and ministry in 1984. Today, it holds annual conferences, mentors, women leaders in church and academy, and promotes social change for justice. To donate, please go to www.panautumn.org. The Gastronomy Club is a podcast that dives deep into the world of local restaurateurs, chefs, cooks, sommeliers, and more. We look at how food, dining, and life in general have informed the craft of eating as well as also spotlighting great places to dine. Check out the Gastronomy Club anywhere you listen to your podcasts. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com.